Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 18th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The California Court of Appeal just made a sweeping change in California's reporting time pay rules, which now limits a common on-call scheduling practice used by employers throughout the state. Here's what happened in the case of Ward versus Tilly's Incorporated. Skylar Ward worked as a sales clerk in Tilly's store in Torrance, California. Under Tilly's scheduling policy, Ward was required to call in about two hours before the start of her shift to determine whether she needed to come to work. If Tilly's told her to report to work, she was required to do so and would be paid for that shift as normal. However, if Tilly's informed her that there was no need to come in, Ms. Ward would receive no compensation. Ward filed a class action complaint in 2015, but the trial court sustained a demur without leave to amend, finding that by merely calling in to learn whether an employee will work a call-in shift, Ward and other employees do not report to work as contemplated by Wage Order 7. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the published case. The court held that merely calling in for one of these mandatory on-call shifts constitutes, quote, reporting to work, which entitled Ms. Ward to her and her co-workers to a minimum of two hours of reporting time pay under the applicable California wage order. Prior to this case, various courts had disagreed about what it truly meant to report to work within the context of this provision. And many courts, not to mention employers, understandably believing that this required the employee to physically report to the workplace location in order to be eligible for reporting time pay. In this landmark case, the court examined the language from the reporting time rule contained within wage order codified in the California Code of Regulations. The court ultimately reasoned that even having a place to telephone call as a part of a mandatory on-call schedule fell within this reporting rule for two main reasons. First, Requiring reporting time pay would require employers to internalize some of the costs of overscheduling, thus encouraging employers to accurately project their labor needs and to schedule accordingly. Secondly, it would also compensate employees for the inconvenience and expense associated with making themselves available to work on-call shifts. This includes foregoing other employment, hiring caregivers for children or elders, and traveling to a work site. And relying on these public policy considerations, the court aligned itself with prior California cases that tended to tie the compensability of work time to the degree of employer control over an employee's activities. But the court left several key questions unanswered, most notably, it failed to address the issue of whether its holding would apply retroactively, potentially exposing countless employers across the state that utilize similar on-call scheduling policies to staggering class action liability. The court also neglected to address the inherent line-drawing problem 
That is, how long before a shift can an employee call in and still have it constitute compensable reporting? If not two hours, then how long? The Court of Appeal also ruled that a worker must prove an injury occurred before they can prevail in an uninsured employer tort claim. Here's what happened in the case of Ruiz versus Carter and Carter. Evangelina Ruiz began work as a legal assistant with Carter and Carter, a law firm, in 2007 at their office in Corona. Christopher Carter specialized in mold and mold remediation cases. In 2011, the form accepted a tort case involving black water and mold in a house. Ruiz was assigned to inspect documents in the case, which she alleged contained mold and mold spores. She became ill and filed a workers' compensation claim. But Carter did not carry workers' compensation insurance during the time she alleged to have been sickened by the documents. So, Ruiz filed a lawsuit in the Superior Court for premises liability under the Labor Code provisions that allow tort-based lawsuits against uninsured employers. Carter brought a motion for summary judgment, which was granted by the trial court. The Court of Appeal concluded that the motion was properly granted and affirmed the judgment in the unpublished case. The Labor Code says that if any employer fails to secure the payment of compensation, any injured employee may bring an action at law against such employer for damages. The Code also mandates a presumption, not present in other tort actions, that the injury to the employee was a direct result and grew out of the negligence of the employer. And the burden of proof is upon the employer to rebut the presumption of negligence. Here, Ruiz had the burden of at least proving that she was injured at the Carter offices. Ruiz failed to provide any competent evidence to support she was injured at that office rather than elsewhere. The burden of proof did not shift to Carter under the labor code to prove that it was not negligent because Ruiz failed to prevent such evidence that she had suffered any injury at work. Genomedics Biosciences Corporation has agreed to pay $1.99 million to resolve allegations that it submitted false claims to Medicare for its Decipher post-operative genetic tests for prostate cancer patients. Genomedics is a genomic testing company with operations based in San Diego. Federal officials claimed that Genomics submitted claims to Medicare for the Decipher test that were not medically reasonable and necessary. This was because the prostate cancer patients did not have risk factors necessitating the test. The Department of Justice said it is committed to ensuring that Medicare patients only receive laboratory testing that is reasonable and necessary for the individual patient. Medically unnecessary and unproven testing increases costs for federal health care programs and is not in the interest of patients. 
The False Claims Act allegations were originally brought in a lawsuit filed by two former employees of Genome DX under the key Tom or whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act. The act allows private citizens with knowledge of fraud against the government to bring suit on behalf of the government and to share in any recovery. In this case, the whistleblowers will receive about $350,000 of the settlement proceeds. Independent pharmacists across Ventura County have filed a lawsuit against OptumRx, alleging the company manipulated drug pricing to enable lower reimbursement rates paid to small drugstores and plunging businesses underwater. OptumRx is one of the biggest operations of its kind in the United States and part of the United Health Network. It sets payment rates as the pharmacy benefit manager for the Gold Coast Health Plan. The publicly funded Gold Coast organization provides Medi-Cal insurance to nearly 200,000 low-income Ventura County residents. The pharmacists allege the company used contracts negotiated with agents of pharmacies to force the businesses into accepting payments that often fell below their costs. They alleged that Optum RX threatened people who pushed back with expulsion from the network. The lawsuit also alleges unfair trade practices, breach of contract, and violation of California law. It was filed by 18 companies and individuals in Ventura County Superior Court. The litigation also targets three pharmacy services administration organizations operated by Cardinal Health, Arete Pharmacy Network and Amerisource Bergen that work as middlemen between the pharmacies and OptumRx. Leaders of OptumRx have repeatedly defended their pricing in a drama that dates back to last summer, shortly after the company assumed its role as the Gold Coast Pharmacy Benefit Manager. The lawsuit alleges OptumRx won the Gold Coast contract because it offered price guarantees and met the guarantees by obtaining secret rebates from drug makers and then manipulating pricing. Pharmacists claim OptumRx also used something called the Maximum Allowable Cost List to force reimbursement down. The so-called MAC list helps set the reimbursement rate and is supposed to be influenced by prices different distributors ask for the same generic medication. But the pharmacists allege OptumRx ignored market prices and made up its own Maximum Allowable Cost based on thin air. And now our crime report. A Beverly Hills workers' compensation orthopedic surgeon has pleaded guilty to two felony counts of billing fraud for selling marked-up goods to his practice from his own medical supply company. Gil Tepper, MD, is now permanently disqualified from being a provider in the workers' compensation system and is prohibited from operating any physician-owned medical supply distribution company. He was sentenced to six months of electronic monitoring and must complete 300 hours of community service. Tepper was also ordered to pay more than $1.7 million in restitution to nine insurance companies. 
about 1.1 million in restitution will be paid from Tepper's frozen funds, and he must pay the remaining amount by his sentencing date on January 28, 2020. If Tepper does not comply with the terms of the plea agreement, he faces a possible maximum sentence of six years in state prison. Tepper created and founded Metalink Distributors, which held itself out to be a manufacturer and supplier of medical hardware products. But prosecutors claimed Tepper employed an alleged co-conspirator, Dr. Jorge Vital, as the director of patient financial services. Officials seized records showing that Tepper used Metalink as a fraudulent shell company to receive health care reimbursement payments for, from insurance companies and government programs through workers' compensation claims. Tepper testified in his deposition in 2012 that he was not aware where Metalink ordered their surgical hardware from and denied ever owning Metalink. His co-defendant, Jorge Antonio Vital, is charged with eight counts of workers' compensation insurance fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit a crime and attempted perjury under oath, all felonies. 53-year-old podiatrist Shlomo Shmuel of Sherman Oaks surrendered to the California Department of Insurance detectives on two felony counts of fraud. He allegedly inflated bills and billing for services not rendered or not medically necessary, resulting in loss to an insurer of more than $360,000. Shmuel operated two businesses, Innovative Orthopedic Solutions and Diamond Orthopedic Services in the San Fernando Valley. Shmuel allegedly billed for Hot Cold Water Unit, also known as a vital wrap system, using two combined healthcare common procedure coding systems called HICPIX codes. But the hot cold unit used to reduce pain and swelling after undergoing, sur undergoing surgery is a single component and requires only one HICPIX code. By using two different codes, Shmuel allegedly inflated the invoices and billed for services that were not rendered. Investigators allege Shmuel was also involved in an unlawful kickback scheme where he paid to have the hot cold water unit prescribed to injured workers despite it not being medically necessary. He allegedly paid a marketer $100 for each unit that was prescribed by another medical provider who treated the injured workers with the unit provided by Shmuel. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. And in regulatory news, California employers will face a FIHA expansion starting this January. Last fall, Governor Brown signed SB 1300, a comprehensive bill that makes several changes in the law for making sexual harassment claims. The bill also amends FIHA to specify that an employer may be responsible for the acts of non-employees for all forms of harassment rather than the responsibility being limited to sexual harassment as it was before SB 1300 took effect. Further, the bill prohibits a prevailing defendant from being awarded attorney fees and costs unless specific conditions are met. 
and SB 1300 prohibits employers from requiring employees to sign a release of claims under the Fair Employment and Housing Act in exchange for a raise or as a condition of employment. These provisions took effect on January 1, but employers and defense counsel need to be aware of the bill's intent language. One intent declaration concerns the legislature's view about whether a single harassment incident still be, could be considered a violation of FIHA. To quote SB 1300, the legislature declared its rejection of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit decision that required more than one incident and states that the opinion shall not be used in determining what kind of conduct is sufficiently severe or pervasive to constitute a violation of FIHA. Another declaration concerns the legislature's view that harassment cases are rarely appropriate for disposition on summary judgment. And the intent language of SP 1300 seeks to lower the legal standard for hostile work environment claims by referring to a single quote by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg that in a workplace harassment suit, the plaintiff need not prove that his or her tangible productivity has declined as a result of the harassment. And in medical news, a new study published in a research letter to the Lancet Medical Journal claims that surgery is a leading cause of death. About 313 million surgical procedures a year are performed worldwide, but little is known about the quality of surgery around the world. Researchers claimed that surgery has been the neglected stepchild of global health and has received a fraction of the investment put into treating infectious diseases such as malaria. So that's what this study set out to explore using available data on volume and type of procedures and death rates. Researchers found that about 4.2 million people worldwide die every year within 30 days of having a surgery, more than from HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. 7.7% of all deaths worldwide occur within a month of surgery, a rate higher than that from any other cause except ischemic heart disease and stroke. Along with finding that 4.2 million people a year die within a month of having surgery, the team discovered that half of those deaths occurred in low- and middle-income countries. 4.8 billion people worldwide lack timely access to safe and affordable surgery, but answering unmet needs, those countries would increase the worldwide number of postoperative deaths to 6.1 million a year. Researchers concluded that although not all postoperative deaths are avoidable, many can be prevented by increasing investment in research, staff training, equipment, and better hospital facilities. And in other industry news, a project in the UK to develop breakthrough artificial intelligence technology for the anti-fraud insurance sector is one of a number of new projects set to receive funding. The funding is aimed to enable the UK accountancy, insurance, and legal services industries to transform how they operate.
the artificial intelligence software being developed in part by the University of East London will combine AI and voice recognition technology to detect and interpret emotion and linguistics to assess the credibility of insurance claims. The project is one of 40 backed by 13 million pounds in government investment to support collaborative industry research projects to develop the next generation of professional services. UK officials said that artificial intelligence and data are transforming industries across the world, and the UK intends to be at the forefront of these cutting-edge technologies and their application. The projects are part of the Next Generation Services Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. This is a £20 million fund administered by UK Research and Innovation to support the development and adoption of AI and data technologies that will transform the UK's services industry. The CDC reports that millions of workers drive or ride in a vehicle as part of their jobs and motor vehicle crashes are the leading cause of work-related deaths in the United States. And the risk of industrial transportation-related injury will likely increase, according to a new UCLA study of an emerging urban transportation phenomena. West Los Angeles is the epicenter of the electric scooter phenomena, and Santa Monica was one of the first U.S. cities which used the scooters widely. But the vehicles are now available in more than 60 cities nationwide and about a half dozen locations outside of the U.S. UCLA researchers reporting in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network have found that people involved in electric scooter accidents are sometimes injured badly enough to require treatment in an emergency room. This is the first published study on injuries caused by electric scooters. The most common mechanisms of injury among scooter riders were falls, 80% of them, collisions with objects, 11%, or being struck by a moving vehicle such as a car, bicycle, or other scooter, 9%. E-scooters can reach speeds of about 15 miles an hour, and it has become common to see them zipping along streets and sidewalks. Even though they are intended to be used on streets only, riders are often dodging pedestrians and motorists. Unused scooters are frequently left at the edge of curbs, but they sometimes are abandoned in places where they obstruct sidewalks or block building entrances. Cities have adopted a hodgepodge of responses to the safety issues posed by the new phenomena. For example, last year, Santa Monica began a public safety campaign with Bird and Lime, two of the leading e-scooter suppliers. A month later, the city launched a pilot program intended to develop administrative regulations on shared scooters and bikes. The authors wrote that the Segway, a two-wheeled personal transporter that was introduced in the early 2000s and a precursor of the scooters, also carried a serious risk for orthopedic and neurologic injuries. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates.
It's past editions of our news and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.